This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, all our Torah Anytime viewers. Tonight, we are going to be continuing. Oh, first of all, tonight we are learning. So, tonight we're going to go and we're going to continue with proving the, the divinity, the, the authenticity of the Torah. And the way that we're going to do that is through archaeology. Now, why and where and how does archaeology come into play? So, there are people that claim that the Torah was made up, that the Torah uh, was instituted by a bunch of people or a person at a you know X period of time. So, if we can find proof that the things that the Torah say is in fact part of history, it actually happened, then this not only validates the fact that the Torah is correct in everything that it says, but it also gives it a little, uh, not a little, but a lot of extra strength and understanding. And people always, ask, people have, have asked me, especially when I speak about these type of topics, um, I may have spoken about this last week, why am I doing this? And, and I'm doing this not only for everybody else who doesn't know anything about the Torah, but I'm actually also doing it for the people who actually believe in the Torah, people that actually understand the Torah, people that actually uh, do have a strong understanding of the Torah, that when you really understand that it's true, or that it's real, and that it's 100% authentic, you serve it, you work it, you deal with it in a completely different manner. So, the, one of them is the answer that the Torah was made up. Another one, which is continuously surprising to me, is that there are still people, <coughs> they rhyme with Lalastilians, that claim that Israel was never part of the Jewish land. Uh, which, for my life of me, I can't understand, so we're going to be speaking about that. So a lot of the, a lot of the, Archaeological finds that we're going to be speaking about today, because Hashem is actually also going to be, you know, specifically geared uh, towards Israel and Israel. You know, not not solely, but very, very heavily so on this. So we'll have, um, we'll speak about that also. The people, surprisingly, this is really surprising me that you would think the people that first attempted to disprove the Bible, you would think would be, let's say, non-Jews, people that have a, you know, a different religion. Surprisingly, the majority of the, of the Bible critics, especially the loud ones, are Jews. And not only Jews, there are some, you know, secular Jews. Some even them call themselves rabbis, uh, you know, tend to have a reformer conservative before their rabbi, which makes a little bit more sense. But they do claim, there was one conservative rabbi that claimed that the way the Bible describes the Exodus is not the way that it happened, if it happened at all. That, that's a direct quote. Now, this is a rabbi, and again, all right, we got to cut him some slack because he did go through conservative or reform or whatever nonsense that he went through. So, obviously, he didn't get the authentic experience or the authentic, you know, ideology. But still, to preach Judaism, to claim that you're a rabbi, and then claim that the book that you're teaching is not actually accurate, it didn't actually happen, what, where are you going with this? How do you sell someone something that you don't even believe in yourself? How do you go and start telling people, hey, this is what God wants if you don't believe what the Torah says and you start making excuses? And of course, they have to say that. Why? Because they don't listen to the Torah. So why would they want to say that the Torah is actually accurate and actually happened if they themselves don't actually listen to it? So the the idea also that we have to understand is the idea of ancient history. And we spoke about this briefly the, for example, you, when you look at what ancient historians, the, the first, the father of, of historians, the father, he was a Greek writer by the name of Heroditus. He was a, um, he was a historian that lived about 500 BCE, before Common Era. So, before that, history was not, oh, thank you. History, spoiler alert, okay. History, we may or may not be speaking about camels. Okay, so, um, 
history, when you look at ancient history, the way that it was dealt, the way that it was written, was written with a propaganda, with a um, with a a desire, a drive for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to make the people of the of the whatever it's Egypt or whatever it's Greek to make them look good. And if they lost a war, it would not be placed in history. If they won a war, it would be placed in history and be magnified and glorified. The question that this answers is that people say, well, if the Exodus happened, if Yitzhak Mitzrayim really did happen, how come we don't see this in any ancient literature? The reason is because you won't ex- expect it to see it in anything. They were, and I'll tell you something, you know, that, that's, uh, you know, very interesting. There was a war that was fought. It was called the Battle of Kadesh. It was between the Hittites and the, uh, and the Egyptian. This was in the time of Paro, the Ramses II. They both fight a war. Now, when two people are fighting, there is generally one winner. Yet, in both of their documentation of it, they're both victorious. They both, not like, like, like crazy victorious. Now, how could that be that two people are fighting against each other both think that they won? It's not Shalom Bayit. It's not to a husband and wife, right? Husband and wife. They're fighting. Everyone thinks that they win at the end. Really, they both, lo- they both uh, lose at the end. But, when you're having a war, only one person can be a winner. Then how can you have here that two people both claim that they won? The answer is because they claim it from their perspective. They're claiming it from their, from their, from their side. And this is in general. Whenever you hear a complaint, regardless of whatever you are, whether it's business therapy, uh, you know, dealing with just coworkers, whenever you hear a complaint, you can never hear one side. You always have to hear a third side, right? There's always three sides to complaints. There's always three sides to arguments. There's the, you know, there's one side. Then there's the other side, and then there's the right side, which none of them actually say. So, when you look at history, and when you're looking at it from a biased perspective, you don't expect to see anything that is negative about it. And this is what you see, you look at history, you have, you know, you know, in Greece, you know, it doesn't matter where you go, Babylon, they're winning wars, winning wars, winning wars, and then all of a sudden, a 300 year gap in history. Like, what happened? Did the people forget to write in this time? Well, what happened? People forgot to pay them? Where did the history go? And the answer is, they weren't winning wars. If they weren't winning wars, they're not putting it inside history. So that is the reason why we don't see, uh, you know, the Exodus, Yitzhak Mitzrayim, the splitting of the sea. You don't see this written down in the in the uh, history books of the, you know, specifically the Egyptians. However, we do see that it, it was actually documented, and we'll speak about where it was documented and how it was documented and what it actually it, it specified. There is also when you're looking at archaeology, when you're looking at history, and this is in general when you're doing research on anything. People tend to do research from a from from a certain angle that they want to. For example, if they want to see something, they'll see something. If they don't want to see something, they won't see something. There's a saying goes that you hear what you want to hear, you see what you want to see. People may or may not say this is you know geared more towards one gender, but I don't know, whatever. So you when you're when you're doing research and when you're and this I tell people all the time, if somebody's going to do research on Judaism, wants to know if Judaism is real, if he's going to go and he's going to speak to an atheist. And he's going to declare, hear his critics. What is he going to say? Even if what he's saying is true, even what he, but he's going to twist it a little bit. And but the same way goes from the rabbis. The rabbis also will twist it because they want to. You know, they're they're actually also promoting you know Judaism. And that is why when I went into this uh, with this series, I did it. I, I took myself out of the equation. I really did. I tried it very very hard to take myself out of the equation. And I wanted to prove to myself if it's true. Does God exist? Is the Torah legitimate? Is it divine? And when you when you go out of the box and you start you start thinking a little bit differently. You start asking questions from different angles. I had a guy once, I used to come to my classes, and uh, he would always ask me the most ridiculous questions. And I knew that he knew about, like, I'm like, why are you asking me these questions? It's not even questions that bother you. I know who you are. Like, I knew him for a very long time. He says, I'm training you to, is one of my students, I'm training you, I'm like, the teacher that comes a master. Okay. Um, 
So he says, I'm training you to know when this way you'll you'll think this way, and this way you know you'll, when you'll prepare classes, you'll know how to answer uh, people. Well, um, what he said was, uh, you know, maybe not the, the the nicest thing to say, but what he said was very very true. Because then I did start thinking that way when I prepared classes. Now that's why when I prepare classes, and many of you see me, I come with like 30 pages of notes. We usually don't finish that, or you, sometimes you see me say one sentence, and I'll turn like three pages. Uh, the answer, the reason for that is, is that you didn't ask me any questions related to that, so I don't need to answer it. But I'll do I'll, I'll when I do my research. I'll I will, I will sort of prepare questions that I think people will ask, and then I'll prepare the answers for that because I could, you know, foresee it. Now, I don't have to, if no one's asking the question, there's no really reason, uh, you know, to bring it up because I didn't feel it's an important aspect to it. So, when I went into this, into this topic, I really did it from an outside perspective because I want to really be true to it. And that, you know, it has to be true research. And this is what I tell people all the time. When you're researching about Judaism, when you're researching about religion, when you're researching about God, if you are true to yourself and you are really want to look where you want to look and you really want to see the truth, you'll find it. And it's going to be very, very obvious. And that's not, I'm not saying that from, from, you know, my point of view, from my way. I, I took myself out of that equation. I went, I spoke to people. I've done plenty of research on this matter. And I can tell you that's for a fact. If you really do it from an outside perspective, you will see that not only that there has to be 100% that there is a God, but you'll also see that 100% Judaism is legit, accurate, and current. The, why I bring this up now is that there was certain, certain archaeologist in the 1950s by the name of Kathleen Kenyon. She went with a sort of idea and she, she researched, she did archaeological digs in Jericho, Yericho. It's a place in Israel where Yeshua went and he captured the, the city of Yericho. Now she wanted to go and see, you know, the archaeological findings in that. So she went, she did a little bit of research, very weak research, and in the research she claimed that it must be based off her research that the Jews didn't enter the Holy Land. They had land of Israel, a hundred 150 years after they claimed it, which means is that Jericho did fall during the time that, you know, there was, it was a war, it was a siege, and they, you know, they, they captured it, but the Jews didn't capture it. The, somebody else captured it, the Jews just claimed, you know, that, it, you know, the, the victory to themselves. How did she come to this conclusion? So she did, she looked at sort of a, uh, imported pottery. There, there's a certain imported pottery called the Cypriot pottery that, uh, you know, should have been imported during that time, and it wasn't. Based on that, she, come, she comes into all her calculations. The problem with that is, is that she herself claims that Jericho was not in a major route. It wasn't in a place where you expect to see where pottery would be traded, especially this specific pottery. So she was looking at it from one angle. And in fact, later, people went, did research on Jericho, did research on the fall, on the wall, and all that thing, and they validated what the Torah says. So when you're looking at it, it depends on what, you're, what where you're looking at it. And some people, you know, this is a problem, because when some people, let's say they are, they have a few letters after their name, and they can speak very, very charismatically, and very articulate in the words. So they could convince you anything, especially if they throw words you don't understand. Be like, well, we did research and we found that the Bible is false. Well, you know, I beg to differ. And just because you claim it with such authority, with such, you know, proofs in your eyes, does not mean that it's true. And that's what we have to really think about. You really have to take yourself out of the equation. And when you see that, you really look at things in a whole different light. The... Also, the, the idea is, is is that how are we testing the Bible? How are we testing the Torah? For example, we know the Jews w- wandered through the desert for many, many years in, you know, when they left Egypt. So people will say, okay, listen, how come we didn't find any archaeological findings in the desert? So, and also you could think of it in a different way. We know that the Jews at a certain point, they died. We know everything shot up, they went, they dug the graves, they had to, you know, they died. The generation of the spies did not enter Israel. They died every year, they died, you know, a large, a large percentage of them died. How come we don't find the graves? So, 
the question that is asked is like, that's legitimate, that sounds very interesting, but are you basing your questions, are you basing your criteria for searching for archaeological finds based off the Torah, based off your understanding? The Torah specifically says, for example, that the clothing of the Jewish people when they're traveling in the desert grew with them. They had dry cleaning, they didn't have to work, they didn't have to worry about it. So the Torah itself says that you would not expect to find other clothing, other materials. It itself says that you don't claim. Furthermore, you want to dig for bones? Where are you going to dig in a desert? How are you going to know? You know how many places they have to dig in a desert? The Jews traveled and the Jews prepared to die. Throughout the 40 years, you could say roughly there's probably about 20 burial sites. Where are you going to, where are you going to check? You're going to check. And besides that, there's a sandstorm always in the desert. The sand is always shifting. Where are you going to check? Just because you didn't find anything, not finding something is a very weak claim to evidence. If someone goes and says, you know, I... I I don't know if this is true, I didn't find any evidence for it. That doesn't, just because you didn't find anything does not mean anything. It could be existed, you just didn't look at it. You just didn't look at it clear enough or well enough. The, also an idea that one has to uh, consider is that let's say you find a very, very ancient book dating to the time of the Torah. And the Torah says one thing, and this ancient book says something, something completely contradictory to it. Must be that what? That the Torah is wrong. Does everyone agree with me? Oh, why not? No, let's say it came at the same time. Oh, very good. Excellent. Maybe the other guy is wrong. What makes you think that the Torah is wrong? When you have a conflict that all it means is that one side is wrong. But yet what people tend to do is they always put it on the Torah. The Torah must be wrong. The Torah always stands up in question. The Torah always has to be validated. Why? Let the other side be validated. Science conflicts with Torah. Torah must be wrong. Why? Maybe science is wrong. There's one thing that hasn't been changing, and that's the Torah. And it's been consistently correct. And it's been consistently proving itself, non-stop, yet every single time when we have a conflict, we claim that, oh yeah, it must be that there's some problem in the Torah, there's an error in the Torah. Why do we look at it that way? And the answer is because we look at it from a biased perspective. We look at it, that yeah, I want it to be wrong. Or, you know, if somebody does want it to be wrong, why? Because then I don't have to do certain things. So... That being said, we have to look, uh, you know, at, at this idea uh, uh, very, very objectively. Also, what, what is very important is all that said and done, we'll still see such significant proof and validation of the Torah that I didn't even need that whole introduction. I didn't even need it. But why did I? Why do I say it? Because not everybody knows how to do research. Not everybody knows how to look into things. So just because you hear something that may be wrong, ask questions. We're the, as far as I know, one of the only religions that says, yeah, ask us. And it's not because we're like the tough guy. I'd be like, yeah, go home on, you know, come at me with any question that you got. You know, we got, we're not, we, we're just very confident because it's true. And there's nothing to lie. When you're, when you're saying something true, there's no reason for you to lie. There's no reason to you be afraid of anything. Because you're saying what he's saying is, is, is true. There are also there's understanding, and this is very, very popular amongst, uh, you know, um, uh, many, many scholars is that, look for example, the story of Exodus, the Egyptian time, the Egypt, the Egyptian, you know, exile. It must be true, why? Because which nation is so not smart, let's call them, that they will start off their nation being slaves, like the lowest slaves. Like if we're making something up, you know, we're going to be a little smarter that we'll be the ones who are owning the slaves. You know, we'll be the ones who own the real estate that owns the slave. You know, whatever, we'll do something, but we won't put ourselves as a slave. If we made it up, why are we making ourselves as, as the as the slaves? The, you know, there, there's also the, there's document uh, that was found that, uh, and it's something very interesting. It's a papyrus. So uh, you'll hear this word papyrus very often, especially when you look into archaeological finds. Papyrus, just think of it as ancient paper. This is what they used to uh, write upon. Much 
more stronger than the paper that we have that you just blow at it and it just like rips into you know the pieces it's actually made from like a you know much stronger fiber so it does last longer but this is so you'll see you'll hear about this papyrus there was a papyrus that was found and it's the papyrus of Alinden that there were tribes that built Pisom and Ramses Pisom and Ramses was in Egyptian cities that we know that the Jewish slaves built these cities that's what we know based on the Torah then they found this papyrus that says that the Jew, that these tribes built it what type of tribes Abiru tribes the Abiru tribes and they made some very interesting, you know, you know, when you, when you translate it and when you convert it into the current language that we're speaking about today, Abiru could come, could, you know, sound very similar to Ivru or Ivri, which is what? Which is a Hebrew. A Hebrew, Ivri, that's what they were during, uh, during those times. But even more than that, that, you know, we know it says in Torah, the, the Egyptians made this Jewish slaves very, very, life very, very bitter. Made them, uh, you know, built, not only did they make them build it, but then they give them straw, that they, they, uh, they order people to watch over them and hit them if they don't, you know, do enough, uh, enough of the, of the labor. There was an Egyptian papyrus that was found that speaks about the brick industry at length. And it says specifically over there that they didn't give them any straw. And they had to go and they had to work for the straw and they had to find the straw and they had a quotas for the straw. So all these ideas were all mentioned already in, uh, uh, in there, there was also a drawing that was found in the rock tomb. One of the rulers of Paros, uh, one of the rulers of Egypt, Paro, he they had there a very interesting picture. They had dark people that were like taskmasters overseeing light-skinned people who are working, which would make a lot of sense since the Jews were coming from a different area. They moved into to Egypt. They came from a light-skinned background. The Egyptians come from a dark-skinned background. And hence, this is where you see that. Even though nowadays there are plenty of Jews that are dark-skinned and we know they're still Jewish, it's not a problem. I'm not going to get into the whole black Israelite thing because I will go on a tangent. No, they are not the correct Jews. And yes, I will fight for that and I will gladly speak to anybody because I've spoken to people, you know, on this, uh, you know, on that. But, you know, nowadays we have, besides Ethiopians, Ethiopians, you know, we know that they are Jews. Okay, I'm not, we're not getting into all those off topic, because I, I'm already see myself. What? Huh? I know, it's in my mind. I'm like, cause like, I'm saying something, and then I hear, I'm like, what the other person's gonna say, I'm like, you know, you're wrong. You know? Which is not weird, cause there's people here. If there's no one here, and I'll be speaking just at a camera, that'll be a problem. Um, so, Bokhashan, thank you for making me not look crazy. Um, Okay, there was also a, um, and, and by the way, they did a, um, there, was, there was a papyrus that was found, a list of 95 slaves' names. Out of those 95 slaves, 37 of those names of those slaves were Semitic. And you had also things like Shifra over there. The names that we have in the Torahs you have over there in this papyrus. So we see over here, there is documentation. It's not just, it's just not in the National Egyptian, you know, Heritage Foundation, I don't know, whatever. So, you know, their, their, you know, their, their uh, history. But you, we do find now a lot of archaeological facts and findings that prove and validate what the Torah said was actually true. There was the Ipawar papyrus. It's a very, very famous papyrus. Right now it was purchased by the Leiden Museum in Holland. They, it speaks about their 10 catastrophes that happened to Egypt. Now, I would venture to say that would be very similar to the ten plagues. And in fact, it goes on, and it goes on to explain some of those, some of those catastrophes. You have over there, um, this was actually a different papyrus. We'll get to the Ipuar papyrus that, and by the way, they dated this Ipuar papyrus, and it dates back to that time. It actually dates back to that time of, of the Exodus. The, the Dr. John Wilson, that, uh, he, he writes, and he says that when, when he translated one of the papyrus over there, and I'm gonna quote for you, it, this is referring to the Nile flowing with blood. If one drinks of it, one rejects it as human blood. 
Now, this is not something that you hear very often throughout history. So this is something that very said, why would you drink water and reject it of blood? And yet, the Torah claims that, the, you know, that the, all the water turns to blood. You also had, there were also diaries. There was a diary that was found, and in there speaks about the plague of darkness. It says like this, and I'll quote, Darkness covered the western heaven, heavens, and for a period of days, no light was shown in the two lands. So you see over here, there is proof already, documentation that was written there regarding the, you know, the... Um, the darkness. The, the 1987, Dr. Hans Godik, who um, he uh, he's a professor of Near Eastern Studies at John Hopkins University. He found he, he spoke about this inscription that was found in the El Arish. It's uh, it's near modern uh, Gaza. Uh, the, this uh, this uh, I guess you call it a shrine that it was there. Now, how did they get there? They actually moved it. They actually moved it in the year 626 BCE. They moved it from Egypt to near Gaza. Why? Because they were trying to prevent some sort of a Persian attack. So they wanted, they thought it was, you know, some religious power. So they moved it over there and this is was, uh, this was going to prevent them. In there, it says, in this shrine, it says, and I quote, there was no stepping out into the open for a period of days. One face cannot see its equal. Again, exactly what the Torah speaks about in the period, in the, in the plague of darkness. And then it goes on, it speaks about hellfire, it speaks about locusts, it speaks about other things. Firstborn, for example. He who places, I'm quoting, he who places his brother in the ground is everywhere. It is the groaning that is throughout the land mingled with lamentations. So you see over here, there's, there's, now it doesn't claim it, like, yeah, plague number one, we had blood, plague number two, but you see over here, and again, it wasn't like they were, they were sitting in there and they were counting the plagues. It's the same idea, um, when someone gets into a car accident. You're not gonna ask him, well, how many times did you flip over? You know, well, you know, 17 times. Like, my next question is, why were you counting? And how did that work? You know, you're counting, you know, you hit a car accident, you flip over and you're like, one Mississippi, you know, like, they flip over again, two, you know, and they come out and be like, what happened? 17 times I flipped, 17 times. Um, so again, this is not, you wouldn't expect them to document it like they document in the Torah, because the Torah is coming from a different angle, but what, but you see over here, the catastrophes that they do speak about it. Historian Will Durant, and I quote, claims like this, each passing year, adds to our store of knowledge and provides us with more and more documents, inscriptions, monuments, and excavations which confirm the Bible's historic ac- historical accuracy. Science is now in the position to state categorically that the Bible is factual till proven otherwise. And we'll see many, many more of those types of, of quotes. Now you look at the, there's some people that say, well listen, the maybe all this did happen. And the ten plagues actually did happen, but it was a natural disaster. And they claim it, you know, there was red soil that went into the water, and uh, that turned the water all red. And then the frogs got, you know, flipped out from the red soil, and they jumped out. So the, now the frogs are all over the land. Now since the frogs are not in the water, so the fleas were, and the flies, and the, and the you know, and they had infections that were, that were spreading throughout the land, and that's why you had the lice, and that's why you had the pestilence, and that's why you have all the animals dying, you have all these, and they claim it one after another. And then when they claim, claim it, can't, Rewind. Okay, when they can't claim it one after another, they'll just say, well, for example, darkness. Darkness happened, why? Because it was a sandstorm. And people thought it was darkness. Uh, you know, what happened to the firstborn? I love this. Uh, the way people's mind work is so, uh, you know, it amazes me, the, the imagination that people have. It was because of, all, you know, the there was a plague. The plague was uh, flies or bringing diseases, and they ate all the food. But then, all of a sudden, they had food, but... The, who are the first people that can eat the food? Only the firstborns. They ate the food, they all died because it was poisonous. So that's why only the firstborn died. And this is how they paint the entire picture. So, it's so like this way, you go, you're so backwards that it makes absolutely no sense, but again, taste your own. The question that is, you follow up with that is not that it doesn't make sense. That if you're saying that this happened, then how come it didn't happen again? 
How come we don't see any more dust storms that have seven days of darkness? How come we don't see any more, you know, red soil, Nile, you know, water plagues? That, you know, how come we don't see any more that all the frogs... In history, we know one thing. History repeats itself. There's a, there, there's a saying that historians say, um, which I don't remember, so I don't know why I said that, but it goes something along the lines like, if you don't, uh, if you don't history, if you don't learn history, you'll end up repeating it. Yeah, you'll doom to repeat it. I'm sure that I'm going to get a lot of that, and I thank you all in advance for all the emails that I'm going to get for this uh, saying, so I appreciate that. Well, whatever that saying goes, if you know it, good. If not, let's move forward. Um, furthermore, we have documentation in the Torah that says that not only did these plagues happen, but Moses announces them when they're going to happen. Not only does he announce when it's going to happen, he also announces at times when it's going to end. We look at the, prog- uh, the, the plague of frogs. The plague of frogs, Moshe goes and asks Paro, when do you want it to end? So Paro is thinking, you know, like, okay, he's going to tell me to do it right now. Why? Because he knows, this is all nature, this is all magic. He knows that the frogs are going to go away right now. So he wants to look good. So he's going to come to me. He's going to tell me, oh, when do you want it to go away? And Paro will say, right now, right now. And he'll say, fine, not a problem. I'll make it go away right now. And then I'll think that he'll think that I think that he's the, you know, he's the one in control over it. So Paro says, you know what? No, I want it to go away tomorrow at noon. Which is a little bit, you know, crazy because he's willing for his entire nation to suffer for another day just to prove Moshe wrong. So Moshe said, fine. He says, not a problem. We'll do it tomorrow because you'll know that there's no one like, like our God. There's no one like our God. And exactly when Moshe said that it's going to happen tomorrow, the next day, that's when all of a sudden the frogs disappeared. So which means is that not only did Moshe had this idea of when the plagues are going to come, but he also knew when they were going to go away. Which means is that even if you want to claim all natural disasters, how do you claim this? Was he a good meteorologist? Was he, was he that good? You know, did he have, you know, some satellites that he was looking into? Where did he get this knowledge from? The, when we look at the next, the next idea, the next idea is the, the idea of the flood. The idea of the flood, this, this is, uh, you know, I, I really enjoy this, uh, because I, the flood? The, the, the marble. Oh, no. Noah's flood. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, the, the reason why is, uh, first of all, people say, well, if there would be a flood, we would expect to see evidence in it. And yes, you're right, we would. And guess what? Now we are finding uh, evidence, uh, you know, of it. The in in fact, you have you have um, many many cultures, many many ancient cultures that all speak about the flood. Now you're talking about cultures like ancient Greeks, ancient people from Australia, India, uh, Tibet, Lithuania, all who claim that there was some sort of massive flood. Now. United Nations didn't come together yet, you know, to destroy Israel because you know Israel wasn't there yet. They came, you know. So w- did people have, uh, you know, a, you know, a meeting and be like, "Hey guys, listen, uh, let's make up some sick story. Let's say that a flood came and go out and tell your stories to everybody else." If everybody's saying the same story, there must be some truth to the story. From Noah, what do you mean, Noah? And people, people, yeah, yeah, I'm talking about Noah people. I mean, they, you know, they would. I'm sure they, you know, Noah would told them about the biggest event in his life, that he didn't, you know, that there was a flood and everything happened, and I'm sure, like, their parents, that is a tradition, that is a story that you don't really forget that quickly, especially, like, you know, it, it's, of course, it, well, it all came from one nation, it all came from Noah. So, in fact, in 1872, Dr. George Smith of the British Museum identified the first non-biblical written record of the flood. This is in a place of Sancheb, uh, of Ninveh. He found it, I'm going to quote for you, a ship touching ground on a, mount, a mountain called Nasir. And then I'm going to quote for you, this almost sounds like it's a quote from the Bible, but it's a quote from a non-biblical source. When the seventh day arrived, I sent forth and set a free a dove. The dove 
went forth, but came back. Since no resting place for it was visible, she turned around. This is from a non-biblical source that they found, and, they, and this is what recently, 1872. This is when they found this, uh, this, uh, this idea. You also have the Babylonians in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Speaks about a flood. It's very interesting because they each call Noah by a different name. That is something very interesting. They each call... Um, you have, for example, the Chinese also have this story about the flood, but the, the builder of the ship was not Noah, his name was Yao. Maybe it was a translation, or maybe it was his Chinese name, I don't know. Um, you have the Indians, are, they, they call the shipbuilder Sat Yalvata. You have the Mexican who call him Katska. So you have other people that all have the same story, different names. Which again, that doesn't prove that the story is wrong. That just proves that they call it by, by, uh, by a different name. Go ahead. No, they all came from him. They all came from him and they bunched up. Yeah, it really happened by the Tower of, uh, of Babel where they all split into, into different languages um, during that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so in 1965, the British Museum identified two more tablets confirming the flood. And this is something very interesting. This not only confirms the flood, but it actually states a reason. It says, and I quote, God, having created mankind, regretted it, decided to drown it by the flood, but they call him Enki, whatever, the water god. It twisted some ideas. Revealed that, it, that catastrophic plan to a certain priest, a king called Zusudra, who built a boat and he survived. So you have the same idea, different names, different gods, but the same idea that you have here going on over here. Also, furthermore, you have animal bones found with whale bones. Now, if anybody knows a little bit about the planet Earth, um, whales are in the ocean, animals are on land. Generally, you don't expect those two bones to see together. Now, I actually put it in here before. Let's see if it's still here. Uh, here we go. Okay. Wow, it's really small. All right. Um, the you have. Can we zoom it in? Okay. Anybody know what this is? The United States. Ah, education. <laughs> Very good. Okay. Okay. So. <laughs> There are places, and I'll tell you like this, where they found whale bones. Michigan, in mountains, nonetheless. In whale bones in Michigan, in Vermont. Alabama farmers also, you know, complained about, uh, you know, whale bones. Now, when you look at the map of, and I don't know how to get that thing in the middle, um, away, but when you look at the map of the United States of America, you look at, for example, Michigan, all the way there, up the right over there, um, and you look at other places like Alabama, these places are not so close to the water, and especially not their mountains. So let me ask you a question, how did the whale bones get over there? How did whale, and this is America I'm talking about. No, the, the ocean was everywhere, the, the flood was everywhere, the whole world. So... Of course it would be in other guys, but we live in America, so I figured it would be easier to relate to America. If I speak about the Amazon rainforest, that's good, enjoy, please, uh, you know, knock, knock away. The, but you look at over here, in Georgia, walrus bones were found. How did these bones, were people, you know, did people kill whales and then just like drag them to their farms and be like, you know, let them rot over there and then over thousands of years, all of a sudden, where do they come from? And in fact, no, 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 dinosaurs completely different, uh, I should really speak about that. Well, I, yeah, but it's not a divinity. I could speak about it afterwards. What? Of of whales? Uh, well, everything is technically similar. Yours uh, is it? You know, 
listen, we know that the flood, a lot, everything died. So if there were dinosaurs, and I'm going to use if right now because we're not going to speak about it. Because I'm going to tell myself we're not going to speak about it because we're not closely done. So um, you would expect it to be done by the dinosaurs, by the flood. By the time of the flood, you would expect them not to survive um, or even you know prior to that. So, uh, and again, I'm not saying that's my answer. I'm not saying that's where I'm going to go with that. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's many different, you know, uh, you know, ideas to speak when you speak about dinosaurs. But in any case, um, you see over here that there is, there is, in fact, the, um, oh, I wish I could find, oh, no, oh yeah, here we go. 1987, a, a historian by the name of Paul Johnson says like this, and I quote, there can now be no doubt that some kind of huge inundation did occur. Which means is, at one point, the historians claimed that the United States of America was underwater. Now, did it certainly surface up, like, you know, after a certain period of time? But rather, it, there was a flood, exactly like the Torah, uh, you know, says that it was. Okay. So now, can you guys see this? This is kind of important. What is that? I can't see it. No. Um, I, I see Yeah, okay. So first of all, we know, okay, before we, before we actually get into this, the, we know that prior to the Tower of Babel, all the people spoke one language. They all spoke one language. Now, um, uh, yeah, they spoke Hebrew. Lashon Hakodesh. Yeah, the and we know many Greek and Roman the Roman language, which by the way, which comes English, French, and German, comes from that language. So many of the languages that we speak today actually stem from uh, Greek and Roman. And it's very interesting. Uh, and again, I'm not saying this is conclusive proof for it, but it's a very interesting fact to look at. That you look at the Hebrew language, which came way before Greek, way before Roman. We know, you know, this is you know. Well, I know this for a fact. I don't know if science knows it yet, but so they'll figure it out. Um, you have over here something very interesting. Over here you have on the, on the, well, you're looking at it this way. So on your right side, you have over here, no, let me stand up. I don't know why I have this up. So you see over here, this is, this is the Greek alphabet, and I just take some, took some of the letters. This is the Hebrew alphabet, and I took some of the letters. Now, what is the first, without looking at it, if you can't read it, what is the first Greek, uh, alpha? alpha. What does that sound similar to? Aleph, very good. What comes next? Beta. Beta. What does that sound similar to? What comes next? Very good, very good. What comes next? (laughs) Oh, really? Okay. So you have over here Delta, Dalit. Let me just repeat that for everyone here in the uh, virtual world. Alpha, Aleph, Beta, Bet, Gamma, Gimel, Delta, Dalit. Does you see a a, some sort of uh, a thing going on over here? This I just skipped. Kappa could sound like Kuf. Lambda, like Lamet. Mu, like men. Nu, like nun. So you have over here mentioned, so many people say, you know, like, where did Greek come from? You know, Judaism took from Greek. We always think of it that way. We always think of it that Judaism takes from other cultures, from other countries. Why don't we stop for a second? I think maybe Greek took from us. Maybe Greek took from the Hebrew. In fact, you look at, for example, the, um, you know, Sapir, right? Not you, not you, the, the, not the, the specifically the name. Is it very similar to Sapphire? The names are very similar. Yain and wine are also very similar. Vine in, you know, the German, you know, the, you have it sounds very, very similar. Six, shesh, zex, all the same, all the, all very, very similar thing. The alphabet, Aleph Bet is the alphabet. Why is it not called the Abyssi or whatever? I don't know how you say it. You know, why is it called that? Why is it called the alphabet? And why is it Aleph Bet? This is, you know, now again, I'm not saying like, you know, not one of these conspiracy theories, 9-11, uh, you know, like I somehow bring it back. You know, I'm, I'm just saying like it's an interesting thing to think about. It's a very interesting thing to think about. Okay, so there's something very interesting when the, when the Bible critics go and um, they look at, you know, the Torah and they say something very interesting that they see. You see over here that Abraham 
sent with his servants 10 camels to Rivka in Genesis chapter 24 verse 10. Yaakov sent gifts to Esau on camels also on Genesis chapter 32 verse 6. Yosef was sold on camels. The Bible critics have a question and they say it can't be because camels were not domesticated at that time yet. According to our history, camels were not domesticated yet, then yet. However, then they found out that camels were domesticated during that time. They found bones of the camels in that area. They found this. And all of a sudden, archaeological finds were actually, and here's where you have it from, they found it in a text that actually existed during that time. The camels were domesticated. They found bones in that time. The camels were domesticated and in that, in that, uh, in that area of time as, as well. You also have something that were, they're called the Nuzi tablets. The Nuzi tablets were 4,000 clay tablets or over 4,000 that were excavated in Iraq. Uh, they actually look like this, this, this little dude. Okay, so um, this, I can't zoom. Um, okay, so here, what is, what is very interesting is that the Torah speaks about ideas that you think doesn't make any sense. And I'll give you for example. Why would a husband, the, the, the rule, and you look at it, the Tanakh speaks about this very often, that you have a husband and a wife. The wife can't have any children. What happens? What does the wife give the husband? She gives a, a, you know, a second wife, let's call it, a concubine, another maidservant, right? We have this of Avraham, Ahagal. We have this with Yaakov and Bilal, with Rachel. We have this idea, you know, that, that giving it there. So you think that's very odd, that's very weird. But actually, when you, when they, during the, when they found this Nuzi uh, tablets, they found that this was actually documented. This was the normal custom back then. The normal custom back then, that's what it was. And if a woman could not have a child, she would give her husband a concubine, and they would give child, you know, for, you know, for her. For, furthermore, very interesting. Furthermore, there, uh, you know, Rivka was a young girl, right? Rivka was a young girl when she was asked to be married. And then they went and they asked her, do you want to be part of this, uh, of this family? The Torah says that they went and they asked her that. We see this in Genesis chapter 24, verse 57. They said, you know, let us call the young girl and let us ask her. And they said, the Bible critics said, what are you going to call this young girl for? What is she, she's so, she's so young. However, the Nuzi tablets over here, they have, they found the documents called the sister documents, where a young girl announces her willingness to accept a certain group to go to marry, to, to go for marriage. So we see over here, there are many things that you find that you think is absurd. This was actually common practice during those days. This is not something that was absurd. This is something that was normal. There was an Australian archaeologist by the name of J.A. Thompson who went and digged at all the arch- uh, all the biblical sites. So you look at Belsheba, Jerusalem. You have uh, places like Shechem that he went and he digged to see if he could find archaeological finds for one purpose. Well, one of the main things was can he find finds that, the, that date back that the places were actually, you know, in existence, which means that people were living in there during the time of the Bible, and during the time of the Torah, and they went, they searched, they dug, and he found that during, and he, and he validated that during the times when the Torah says there are people living there, there are people living there. Now, it's not like nowadays where, you know, people are living almost everywhere because you have, you know, you know, seven billion people. We didn't have over seven billion people back then, so it was very, very sparse, the, the communities. I'm sure real estate was pretty cheap. So, the, Dr. William Albright, he, you know, uh, he found a Babylonian text and the excavation text that identified the names Avraham, Zvulun. They also found the Mary tablets that had contained the names Benjamin, God, Dan, Levi, and Ishmael. All the names that are, well, these are not all the names, but many of the names that are mentioned in the, in the, in the Bible are actually validated from non-biblical sources during that, uh, during that time. Now, if somebody is making this up 500 years later, how do you know all this information? You go Wikipedia, you know? dot ancient dot i or whatever it was you know like there was nothing there there was nothing there you can't people didn't even write history only people that wrote history were the kings and the, the rulers of that during that time and they wrote it based on whatever they wanted based on their own agenda furthermore you have the yosef 
Yosef um, was was sold as a slave. He was sold to, to Potiphar, and the terminology that the Torah gives him is he was he was the ruler over the house. I, and in Hebrew, it's al beto. What's very interesting, this is in Genesis chapter 39, verse 4. There was a papyrus that was found that the chief slaves of that town, you know what they're, you know, of the, of the chief slaves, what was their title? Their title was, and I quote, over the house. Exactly the same title that the Torah gives them to, to do that. And I want to quote for you a quote uh, from the book of Bible as History. It's page 91. Potiphar was the name of the Egyptian to whom Joseph was sold. It is thoroughly a characteristic native name. Joseph's elevation to be viceroy of Egypt reproduced in the Bible exactly according to protocol. He is invested with an insignia of his high office. He receives a ring, paro seal, a costly linen vestment, and a golden change. This is exactly how Egyptian artists depict the Solomon ceremony of murals and reliefs. So we see over here that the way that the Torah says it is actually documented the way the procedure that they do actually claim that it would happen. Furthermore, we know that Yosef was shaved. Why was he shaved before going to the paro? In the old days, everyone had beards, but not the Egyptians. The Egyptians did not have beards. And you see them, you look at their, their paintings, um, you know, they don't have the beards. What's also very weird is, you know, men wore makeup back then. Different, you know, topic in, in its entirety. Um, some men wear makeup nowadays also. So, and you know, it's very interesting. Yeah, we're going to go off topic. Um, it says that they, today America is like Egypt. You know, yes, there are people that say that America is like the Egyptian society. In Egyptian, you had men, let's just say, wore makeup and things that are associated with wearing makeup. Um, and nowadays, it's also very interesting that you have the same, you know, the same thing. There was um, an Egyptian papyrus that was found. This is uh, brought down in the Bible uh, World Encyclopedia that says, a man from the land of Israel who became prominent in Egypt and was considered a very wise man whose wisdom the Egyptian people utilized. End of quote. The... Um, you know, I don't have to explain that. Historian Michael Grant, in 1984... Quotes like this, Joseph's historical existence and appointment to some sort of high Egyptian office need not be doubted. Okay, we gotta hurry up. The idea that Joseph was sold as a slave, and Joseph was sold as a slave, here we go. So, there is something called inflation, which we're very, very used to in, uh, you know, the, you know, now that we live in America, but the inflation was always around. Now, not only was the you know inflation around, but also the price of slaves changed over time. And as you see over here, for example, um, you see over here, this is the price of slaves. And this is where they. This is not a biblical you know resource. This is from a non-biblical uh, you know thing, uh, um, you know research. You see over here, for example, this pieces of silver shekel. You see over here, a slave was about you know thirteen in, in you know two hundred and twenty-two fifty BC. You have a slave being worth this. It dips a little bit. It goes up to twenty at seven fifty, and then you see it goes up. This is the time where Yosef was sold, and the Torah says that he was sold for twenty silver, twenty shekels. Yeah, it is Genesis chapter thirty-nine, verse twenty-eight. And you have over here. This is the exact rate of a going slave during that time period. That they calculated now that, it, that this is what they. Uh, this is what they saw during that time. And it's something very interesting is over here, um, this is from, this is in Malachim. Here we go. In, in Kings chapter 15, verse 20, you have over here also that here you see, a, a, this is 50, 50, this is a slave that was uh, worth 50, 50 pieces of silver, 50 shekels. They calculate this according, and it's again accurate according to what we have to nowadays, that this is actually the amount that a slave was going during that, uh, during that time. Furthermore, we know that Yaakov died on a bed. In Israel, they didn't sleep on beds, they slept on the floor. In Egypt, they slept on beds. And we see the Torah says that he died on a bed, meaning that the Torah knew information that you had to be there in order to, uh, in order to know this information. There, um, we're gonna, we're gonna speed up a little bit because it's getting a little bit late. The, um, there is, 
Okay, this uh, little guy, um, which is worth a lot of money. Okay, so this is um, this is uh, the Taylor Prism. The Taylor Prism was a um, it, it was an archaeological find that it was dated back to Sancherev. Sancherev he went and inscribed on each of the of the sides over here his his uh, military. Uh, victories, uh, more like his military campaigns is a better, is a better word for it. It describes his military campaigns. And it's something very interesting. On the third campaign, it speaks about besieging Jerusalem, going, circling around Yerushalayim. But it's very interesting, it doesn't say that he captured Jerusalem. And he didn't capture Jerusalem. You guys know what happened to, uh, uh, they, they surrounded that entire area, a plague came, killed them all. Uh, during that plague, and then, you know, he ran, Sanchev ran, ran away, and he ended up being murdered by his, you know, children. Nobody knows the story. Okay, some people know. Okay, good. All right, uh, it's a, for a different time. It's, it's a long. I thought I spoke about it briefly. So, it's actually it's actually written in a cuneiform text, which is a very ancient uh, text. So, uh, it, it does look like gibberish, but it is actually um, you know words. The when King Chizkiyahu knew that it was it was a siege that was going to be imminent. Um, before I even go there, does anybody know what picture is up here? There's a cave. Underground water cave. Right. So there was, a, there was, a, what, what he did was, what Cheskia did is that if one of the main things that you do in a siege that you surround them is that there is no water supply, especially if you're getting water supply from an outside source. So King Cheskia, before this, he dug a, a cave from a, from a natural spring into Jerusalem so that they would have a water supply. And here's very interesting. The, if we could scroll up a little bit over here. What they did was they took a, uh, you know, they started digging from one side. They started digging from the other side. And this is something very interesting how they did it. They, um, they dug and they met right over here. Which is, if you think about it, not really the smartest, um, I don't know, architectural, you know, engineering, you know, like, but, but they were able to meet, which is, and this is underground. This, uh, this tunnel is about over 1700 feet long. So it's a very, very long tunnel, very underground. And here, as you see some pictures, here you see actually also the water on it. Uh, it reminds me of a, of a joke where you had a, um, you had two, uh, you had a king who wanted to build the tunnel. And he went and he was taking bids from all the contractors who was going to build the tunnel. The, you know, there were two Jews that needed some money. They needed business and they didn't have any business. So they said, listen, let's make a bid. And they built and they low-bolted. They made it very cheap. So the king calls him in and says, listen, out of all the contractors, out of all the professionals out there, you guys bid are the cheapest. So he says, you guys won the bid, but I have a question. How are you going to do it? So this is very simple. He says, I'm going to build from one side and my friend's going to build from the other side and we'll meet. We all have a tunnel. The king says, you fool, what about if you miss each other? He's, so, the, so the Jewish person says, better yet, you get two tunnels for the price of one. All right? So when you think about it, when you're looking at this, how did they make it? But this is a, a feat of engineering that they, they, they told today's day and age. And we, we're not sure actually how they did it, but they were actually able to go and they were actually able to meet in this, uh, in this place. If you go in, uh, in Yerushalayim, you could actually do this, uh, do this tour inside over there. Here's another picture of the of the uh, tunnel itself. This is actually a picture of the entrance to the tunnel where you hear it, where it's documented about, you know, the, you know, part of the, a uh, part of the situation, part of the story. The, <clears throat> there's, the book of Esther was, um, speaks very, very much in depth about the palace of Ahasuerus. And there was a, um, there was a person by the name, uh, an archaeologist, a French archaeologist by the name of Marcel Dulafoy, who excavated the Persian palace and when he looked through the entire Persian palace, he said that the book of Esther was written by somebody who was very, very familiar with the, with the palace because the, it, their, their indication of what they wrote is extremely accurate to our findings, which means that it had to be there. there um, this is actually one of my favorites. Oh, I love, I, you know, 
I can't say I love this place because a lot of that's over here. But I, I always live company visiting this place. Does anybody know what this is? Masada. This is Masada. This is um, if you go to Israel, this is like one of the most. Anybody who goes there, anybody anybody who goes to Israel usually this is one of the most uh, you know visited places. Um, so this, if anybody knows to know the, the history of it, it's you know Harold. The, Harrod built a, built a palace over there, built a fort, right? But there, it actually, you know, it predates Harrod. There is, um, there, there was unfortunately about over 900 people that committed suicide over here when they were going to be captured by the, uh, you know, by, by, you know, a certain army and they didn't want to get, whatever. There's a whole long story in, in itself. Actually very apropos for Tishabov. But in any case, um, in Masada, the, the reason why it's a very fortified, it's very hard to actually go and capture it. On one side, I believe it's like, uh, you're talking about 1300 feet to the floor. So, um, what they found in Masada, is, you know, very interesting. Now, it's not, this, by the way, where you're looking at right here, is one of the most ancient synagogues that they found in Israel. This is based in Nisada, and this was where they, where they used to pray. This, um, this was a place where they used to store water for the Masada, because of course, you're in the middle of the desert. This is where they used to store, uh, the water, uh, for, for Masada. This is actually a mikvah. And it's mikvah built to the specifications that is kosher. And you have bad places to clean, and you have all the ideas that you see generally in a uh, mikvah. Uh, don't worry, a woman's mikvah is much nicer than what you see over here today. They actually make it very, very expensive and very, very beautiful. But what we see over here is that the Jews not only had to be existing in Israel, but they also kept the same laws that we keep nowadays. The same mikvah that they have, then we have now. The same, well, same, same, again, not the same exact. You know, looking wise, but the same halachic ramifications that we have now that also exist, you know, in, in that days. You also have over here, and I think I skipped that over, there are coins. These are Maccabee coins. Dating from the time of the Maccabees that they, and not the basketball team. Um, this is, you know, these are coins that they dictate. You also have co- coins from the Bar Kokhba revolt. You have coins from during that time that, that show that not only the Jews were living in Israel, but the Jews were also following a certain, a, a certain law. You can also base it off the pictures that you see on, uh, you know, on these coins. There are a lot of, a lot of Bible critics claim that King David never existed. This is a, um, a this is a piece of archaeological find that they found in the Tel Dan. This and they found over here. This this they date to about a hundred years after after uh, King David lived. And this they found in Israel. And they have over here in this inscription you have the house of David. You also have um, King David, if I'm not mistaken, that is documented in over here. So we see over here that not only the King David existed, we also have documentation from that time that he actually that he actually existed. What language is that? Really? I don't know. That's a good question. I have an idea, but I don't want to say it until I actually, uh, you know, look into it. Um, the ancient, yeah, let's just leave it as, as ancient, uh, you know, documentation. The okay, the I want to I want to quote for you a few, few sources and, and give me a few more minutes and, and we'll be done. Um, and if anybody needs to leave because it's late, you know, by all means. Okay, feels like I say that every week. We should just like you should just know that. I forgot to welcome everybody to our our address. Oh my gosh! Okay, where does these things pop into my mind? I I, I didn't even know. Okay. In any case, I thought about it now. Let me just say it now. Everybody's invited. All women are invited uh, to our Thursday nights class at BJX at sixteen oh one Quentin Road. At Thursdays at eight um, at eight p.m. Uh, there is delicious food that is uh, served and. I don't know, candy snack. Oh, you guys have a bunch of stuff on that table, and and, and a delicious speech, right? So, um, 
So, okay. Anyways, yeah. But if anybody has any, wants any more information, please email me at rabbizitron at torahanytime.com. Okay. Now, uh, moving forward. Okay. So, the... I want to quote for you. Okay. Archaeology and the religion of Israel. The Mosaic tradition is so consistent and congruent with our independent knowledge that only a hypocritical pseudo-rationalism can reject its essential his- historicity. Furthermore, Ernest Wright, a famed archaeologist and president of American Schools of Oriental Research, and I quote, the biblical scholar no longer bothers to ask whether archaeology proves the Bible. Such a question is cert- certainly to be answered with the affirmative. Professor John Br- uh, Bimson, and I quote, the biblical traditions and archaeological evidence relate with striking accuracy. Harvard, John Bright, there can be, there can really be little doubt that ancestors of Israel have been slaves in Egypt and escaped in some marvelous way. Almost no one today would doubt it. And finally, I want to quote this uh, last one. Dr. William Steibling, a professor of history at the University of New Orleans. He confesses, let me repeat this, he confesses, and I quote, more biblical scholars, archaeologists, and historians, even ones like myself, who are generally skeptical about the accuracy of the traditions concerning Israel, usually agree that an exodus took place. Which means there's even people who have a problem with the Bible, who, who say that they're Bible critics, whatever you want to call them, they still have to go, and have, based on the evidence that we have, it says that, you know, it, it shows that it did actually um, exist. Okay, now for the, I guess you could call it a little bit of a fun part. Uh, part where my blood pressure, uh, you know, will raise uh, just a tad. <laughs> Rabbi uh, Resnick did, you know, beautiful research in this. So, so uh, in 1925, there was a person who wrote Mein Kampf. Anybody know who that was? Hitler, Hitler. right? Adolf Hitler, right? There's a reason why people don't name their child Adolf anymore, um, or Hitler. Uh, you know, you know somebody who's named Adolf? Oh, I thought your face looked like a zombie. I know an Adolf. You know. Okay, so um, he writes like this. He wrote that an outrageous lie must be true because nobody would have the audacity to make up such a crazy lie. And furthermore, the, if it's repeated enough, people will believe it because it's repeated enough. This Nazi type of propaganda is being used today by the Palestinians. They preach... Uh, in the mosques, in the classrooms, and I have to do, I'm sorry, a few more quotes for you from, uh, you know, from, from some Palestinian authority. Mufti Ikrama Sabiri, quoted in the Palestinian Al-Ayam, in November 22nd, 1997 edition. Western Wall is part of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and the Jews have no connection to it. The same newspaper, in July 18, 1997, Hamad Yosef, Yusuf, Head of the institution of the rejuvenation of the palace in the, of the Palestinian heritage. And I quote, false historical claims of the Jews in the holy city, a claim which they were unable to prove in all of the archaeological excavations conducted by the foreign groups for the past hundred years. I don't know where this guy's living, but not in reality. Basically, they're saying this very simple thing. The Jews have no connection, not only to, to the Temple Mount, but also not only to Jerusalem. Islamic movement, chief. Should have said that together. Islamic movement chief, uh, Raid Salab, stated in 2006, we remind for the thousandth time that the entire Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is, by the way, the Temple Mount, by the way, if anybody knows Al-Aqsa Mosque, that's the mosque on the Temple Mount, including all of its areas and alleys, above ground and under it, is exclusive and absolute Muslim property, and no one else has any rights to even one grain of earth in it. Is that so? Sheikh Yusuf Kardwi denies that the Jews of old ever lived in Jerusalem. They are nothing more of invaders from Europe. Palestinian Minister of Muslim Affairs, Sheikh Yusuf Salmet. The Al-Aqsa Mosque, the Temple Mount, was built 40 years after the construction of the mosque by Mecca, 
which is Adam, which it means is the mosque over here apparently was before the temple even existed. Um, I, apparently he doesn't know uh, Islamic history because uh, they only came in the, about the year 600 Common Era where the Jews had already the temple there, I don't know, uh, I don't know, over 1,500 years prior to even Islam being created. So, anyways, the, moving on. In August 27, 2009, the Jerusalem Post reported, a Palestinian Authority Chief Islamic Judge, Sheikh Tayyaseer Rajab Tamimi, he said that there's no evidence to back up claims that Jews had ever lived in Jerusalem or that the temple ever existed. Einstein said two things. Um, he said two things are, well, he said many things. Two things are infinite. One is the universe, and the second is human stupidity. And I'm not so sure about the universe. Yeah, the, you look at it, the Dead Sea Scrolls. It existed 600 years before even Islam, before the Quran even came into being, and it has over there. Before that, and by the way, we have carbon-14 dating that it does it actually exist during that time. You have numerous sources. First of all, even before we get to the sources, the Torah, which comes way before the, 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 the Quran, says about 700 times, Speaks about Jerusalem, speaks about the Israel. The Quran, you know how many times it speaks about Israel? A big fat zero. Not even one time does the Quran speak about it, about Israel. Then we have numerous non-biblical, non-Jewish sources that claim, uh, you know, about, they speak about Jews in, in Israel. You have the Taylor Prism that we spoke about. The Babylonian Chronicles. There was papyrus dating from the time of King Darius. There are Greek and Roman historians. Josephus Flavius, for crying out loud, speaks in depth about the destruction of the temple. You have, uh, in, and furthermore, every uh, every few years, starting from 1844, they had a um, they had a census that was completed that was that that saw how many Jews, how many Christians, and how many Muslims were living in the uh, were living in Jerusalem. Every single time they did the census, the Jews were more in number than the Christians and the Muslims. Sometimes both of them combined. You look, for example, in 1844, there were 7,000 Jews, 5,000 Muslims, 3,000 Christians. You look, for example, in 1987, 340,000 Jews, 121,000 Muslims, 14,000 Christians. Every single census that was made since 1844, there were more Jews living in Jerusalem than there were Christians or and there were uh, Muslims. To say this is is beyond even the you know my understanding. Anybody know what this is? Very good, Iraq from Kosovo. Now, what will probably give it away, and what people are not familiar with, you see this little indentation over here. You see that going around the entire thing. These are known as the Al Shars. The Al Shars. This was uh, this was made by by King Herod. He the reason why he did that, and not only that, he made that the temple, the the, the rocks. I feel like I'm a tour guide almost. The, you know, you have the um, you have the, rock, the, the stones from the Bet Amigdash over here from the, from the Western Wall. You have over here that or all with this particular design. Now he made sure he made it was forbidden for any other any other um, house in Jerusalem, any other building in Jerusalem to have this type of stone. You were not allowed to have this. Type, this was unique only to uh, only to Jerusalem. Only I'm sorry, only to the only to the Western world. Um, and here you have another picture, and you see it. What's very interesting is that as you go higher up into the Western world, you realize that the bricks get smaller and smaller. And that, those were added by the Muslims in the, you know, 600 BCE. They, they added it afterwards. But where you see, you know, like this and even a little above it, all the way down, that's all remains still from the time of the, of the Beta Migdash that, uh, you know, that we have. And you have the, and this is the proof that you have it over here. And it's going to be very interesting. They actually found this wall in the inner courtyard of the Beta Migdash, which was obviously near Al-Aqsa Mosque. 
um, this is during the 1800s, they found this, this similar type of brick. Now, the, the Muslims didn't realize what the brick was, so they left it there. When they found out that this was, you know, a telltale sign that this is part, part of the, you know, the, the Jewish, you know, you know, you know, our, our history, they all of a sudden, they buried it, they covered it with cement, but we do have some photographs of that area still. They found many things in that area. They found steps going out to the Beit HaMikdash, that they obviously, when the Muslims found out that it's somehow connected to Judaism, they went and they, um, and they, and they, uh, uh, and they erased it. You have also, we, we found so much archaeological findings. And it, I, you know, it's really so, if you go to, you, if you go to Jerusalem, you have to do an old city tour. You really do have to go to old city tour. I, when I was there with my wife, we went to this, we went, we, you see all these things, you go to these museums, you really, you really see something. It's, it's really so amazing. I mean, I personally enjoy it. I don't know, my wife enjoys it, we both enjoy it. But I think it's something really, really unbelievable. Yeah. Oh, exactly. That's pretty cool. You don't even have to walk. It's an American way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's a reason because it's always it's always the American. You know, you get spot the American. First of all, they have that camera. Nowadays, it's all a cell phone, um, selfie stick. I mean, uh, but they have you know they wear those hats and they're always complaining. They're like walking like this. You'd be like, come on, we walk like a mile already. And the Israeli tour guide is like, why are you complaining? You know, he's eating garinim. They're like, why are you complaining? We just started. You know, we're gonna still be walking. You know, seven thousand miles. Um, there's a reason why Israelis are thin and you know the Americans they are eating burgers while they're looking at the things. Okay. The segways, don't worry. Oh, oh, hoverboard? Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, it's, uh, okay. The laziness of our day and age. Okay. Um, this, by the way, these are, these are coins from Bar Kokhba, from the time of Bar Kokhba. They have it here also. So we have things that are dated during that, uh, during that time. Yeah, you'll see this. You'll see this even if you go to the tunnel, tunnel tours. You'll see the, you'll see this type of uh, this type of design. It's going to be sometimes they're very big. There are huge stones over there. They're huge, but you'll see you'll see this general design. You'll see this general design that it's chiseled out about two three inches. Right, right. Mm-hmm. That's why I use this picture, and that's why I use this picture first for that. Um, and again, this doesn't mean that only these are the stones dating back from the time of the second Beit Hamikdash. This is just one of the, the signs that we have, and the majority of the stones, uh, you know, do have uh, do have this thing. For, so when I was going back, so the, the Palestinians claim that we don't have any say in this in this uh, in this land. You have over there pottery that was found with pictures of menorah with. Uh, Yerushalayim in Hebrew, for crying out loud, with things that, that are non-stop denoting that it's obviously a Jewish thing, has nothing to do. By the way, Yerushalayim, Jerusalem is not known as Jerusalem for, um, for Palestinians. It's known as a different, um, you know, as a, as a completely different name. What's the name? Um, it's known as Al-Quds. The, um, you have over here also Ir David, the city of David. The city of David, if anybody does the Torah over there, you also find tremendous amounts of artifacts that all date back Thousands of years that date back, and they all are very, very obvious Jewish and not uh, and not Muslim. Forget about the fact that you have about 150,000 graves in the in Halazetim, the Mount of Olives, right? That's right near um, the the Kodo. Now, I want to quote for you some things of the, you know, from the from the Quran. Actually, I think I have it over here. Oh, here it is. Okay. Who reads Arabic? Nobody. What type of spart am I in? No, I'm kidding. Okay. All right. So, what it says over here is, but that's actually how you pronounce this. Uh, even is a, this is a quote from this is a quote from a surah chapter. Um, what was this? This is the Quran chapter two, verse one forty-five. Oh, I didn't write it down over here. Okay. So, 
Even if you come to those who are given the book. Anybody knows who those who are given the book are known to us? The Jews, yeah. With all the signs, not they would follow your direction of prayer. Now, this is called the Al-Kibbeh. The direction of prayer is, is something very interesting. What it speaks about in this, in this uh, um, sentence, I don't want to call it a pasuk, uh, in this verse, what? They face towards Mecca. We face towards Jerusalem. According to all commentators of the Quran, this is referring to the direction of prayer, is referring to the direction of prayer of the Jews, which is towards Jerusalem. Which means that even though the Quran doesn't state out straight out, you know, say anything about Jerusalem, but in there says that the Jewish people face towards Jerusalem. Why would the Jews face towards Jerusalem if we have no say in this thing? If everything that comes in Jerusalem has nothing to do, we don't have even a grain of sand in it. Why do we, if we never existed, we're just a bunch of frauds, why are we, why are we facing that, you know, in, in that direction in there? Furthermore, you have over here that, um, and I'll quote you for you some scholars, some Muslim, some Sunni and Shiite Muslim scholars. Examples of names. Al-Tarabi, Al-Kartubi, Ibn Katir, Ibn Abi Said, Mahumud, Al-Alusi, and Al-Bagwahi. I know I bought batch of names, but who cares? According to the Quran, God, and I'm quoting right now, the, according to the Quran, God gave to the Jews the land from the Nile to the Euphrates, a territory that includes not only Jerusalem and Palestine, but large parts of Egypt, Iraq, and all of Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon. This is what the Muslim scholars claim. This is what they in themselves, uh, you know, claim. There is, oh, well, this is according to the Muslims. According to the Jewish, this is, we, we don't, we, according to them, yeah, we should have a lot more. But according to the Jews, yeah, that's not, that's not part of our land. The, in Surah Al-Madiyah, chapter 5, verse 20 to verse 21, it says like this. This is referring to, this is written in the Quran, referring to what Moses said to the people. Oh my people, remember the favor of Allah, this is referring to God, upon, who, upon you when he appointed among you prophets and made you possessors and gave you that which he had not given among the world. Oh my people, enter the holy land which Allah has assigned to you and do, and do not turn back and thus become losers. That's actually, the, they actually translate it as losers. I was surprised also. And I tried to look at different translations. They all translate it as losers. Um, so... Sounds very biblical. Alright. Okay. <laughs> Sheikh Ahmad Adwan. Oh, by the way, if that didn't, if that wasn't clear, um, it's referring to very, I didn't actually put it up over here. It's referring to very, very specifically that God gave the Jews the Holy Land, which, you know, again, according to the commentators, is refer- a reference to, uh, a reference to Israel. They deny that. They deny it, yeah. But they comment on it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know some men that are like that. Okay. Anyways, um, <laughs> Sheikh Ahmed Adwan. He lives in Jordan. And he says like this, that no, there's no such thing as Palestine in the Quran. And by the way, these are, I, I hope you get, there's a reason why I'm, you know, breaking my teeth saying these people's names. Uh, because I'm, they're very not obviously Jewish. It's not like, you know, you know, Yehuda and Jason, you know, like Mordechai and Mark, you know. Uh, you don't see too many people named Sheikh Al-Tabayin or Wahamid, you know. Um, <laughs> This, so this uh, Sheikh Ahmad Adwan, he lives in Jordan. He says, there's no such thing as Palestine in the Quran. Allah has assigned the Holy Land to the children of Israel until the Day of Judgment. Now, then I have a question. Ah, very good. Um, because it says Ishmael is a Pere Adam. Pere Adam is, does not mean a righteous scholar. Um, the, even furthermore, before we get to like bashing that, the... It says in the Torah that when Avraham got his three guests, and we're finishing with this idea, when Avraham came, when, when Avraham, um, had his three guests that came to visit him, he said that they, you know, they were Arabs, and he wanted them to wash the dust of their feet. Now we spoke about this in the Mashiach, why did he want them to wash the dust of their feet? Because he was nervous, maybe they prayed to the dust of their feet. Who prays to the dust of their feet? Who is so, like, prays to the dust of their feet? But the answer is, is this is what, this is what they represent. What does that mean they pray to the dust of their feet? Then, 
no, no matter where they walk is holy ground. Which means that they cannot do anything wrong. Everything is in the name of God. They, um, they, they will go and they will murder people in the name of God. That's why it says Yishmael. Yishmael, God will hear me. No matter what I say, no matter what I do, Allah Akbar. Right? I could kill innocent people. I could murder innocent people. It's all what God wants. Uh, even if it's not, but they don't, it doesn't matter to them because that's what they claim. They see it from one perspective. Now when you're dealing with a person who sees the only thing from one perspective, you can't, you can't, you, there's, there's no fighting. There's no fight. This is why, by the way, you'll never have peace in the Middle East. How can you have peace with somebody who is so conflicting, says to so many conflicting ideas, they can't even agree with themselves? Even in their holy book it says it. In the Quran it says it. All their scholars, their Muslim scholars, the ones that are true to their book, Claims it straight out that the, Jew, the, land, the Jewish land belongs to, to uh, the Israel belongs to the Jews. You have archaeological findings that no matter how much proof you give to them, it's not going to make a difference. No matter what you promise them, it's not going to make a difference. Ego, you get to call it ego. A thirst for blood. It could be many things. Yishmael and yeah, and it's not. Right, right. That, that that is that is true. But one thing is here is that this is there's really a lesson that I want to get to this, and it's probably one of the most important lessons of actually this this uh, this class. Is we look at Ishmael, we look at all these all, all these claims, and we think like they're crazy, like it's so obvious that it's true. We have proof. We have archaeological proofs. We have you know stating from their book. We have dating back from other his other nations, other countries who claim that this belongs to us, yet they don't claim it, and we and we call them crazy, and we say, look at that. But the answer is, if we look at ourselves, are we any better? How many times do we know the truth? How many times do we know what we're supposed to do and we still don't do it? How many times do we know that we have to go and we have to dress modestly? How many times do we know that we have to go pray? We have to go and we have to keep Shabbat. We have to keep kosher. We have to do all these things and yet we don't do it. And we call the other people crazy. You know why? It's because you're always normal. Everybody else is crazy. That's always the way that you see it. So we look at them as crazy. But in essence, this is a lesson for us. We have to think of ourselves... We've come to a point in our series already, by this point in time, that it should not be a doubt in your mind that the Torah is divine. And how many people can claim and say that they listen 100% to the Torah? Now granted, I get it, people fall, people make mistakes, that's true. But what I don't get is when people say that they're not doing anything wrong. When people claim, yes, I understand that the Torah says, but I think I'm a good person and God understands me. The thing that, one of the worst things that I hate hearing is that me and God have an understanding. And I'm like, I don't think so. Uh, well, you may have an understanding, but it's just from one-sided. You, got, you cannot claim that you have an understanding with God that you could do certain things and not anybody else when you're going directly against what He says in His Torah. Directly against. And how many times, and this, by the way, is not only relative, you know, related to the Torah. In our own personal lives and relationships, if you don't realize that you're wrong, and let me explain something very, very clear, and it should be very, very clear. Every single fight that you have in a relationship regardless of whether it's a spouse, regardless of whether it's between a parent and a child, a friend. Unless one person is psychotic, and I know that many people are going to claim, yeah, they're obviously psychotic, both people are always wrong. There are people, every single fight, both people have to apologize. Every, so there's always there's always somebody that does something wrong. And if you don't think that you did anything wrong, then there's a problem with you, not with a problem with the other, the other side. The first step of AA, or if I'm not mistaken, one of the first steps, is you have to admit that you have a problem. If you don't admit that you have a problem, you're not going to get better. If you think that you're okay by not listening to God, if you think that, if you honestly think that you're completely okay if you don't keep Shabbat and you're a Jew, 
then you have a very, very rude awakening that's going, coming out to you. And, and I, I really do. I wish you all the best, and I wish you know, that you don't get this awakening. But don't be a fool. Don't fool yourselves. This is what they're doing. This is what the Palestinians are doing, and this is what they're claiming. And we consider them fools. We consider them blind. We consider them you know, idiotic. It doesn't make any sense. There's so much proof. How can you dare say such a thing? Well, guess what? God could say the same thing to us. There's so much proof. There's so much val- validation that you can make in this world. How dare you say that it's not true? How dare you? You don't even go and you don't even look at it. I speak to many people. I have arguments with people all the time about proving God, proving the Torah, proving that. And I tell them at the end of the day. Because usually at the end of the day, they leave, you know, okay, I'll think about it, I'll do that. Whatever, I say, listen, whatever you do, you do. And I can't judge, and I can't say, for, for sure I can't judge you. And I can't tell you what's going to be and what's going to happen. You're your own person. But one thing I do ask of you, and I say this almost to every single argument I have in this matter, is don't think that you're correct. Don't live your life thinking that you're fine. You want to live your life not keeping Shabbat? That's your prerogative. I can't change you. You want to live your life you know, not eating kosher? You want to live your life not dressing modestly? That's yours. I cannot say anything. But don't think for a second that you're correct because you are 100% incorrect and you will never change. And this is so important. When you're looking to, to a spouse, when you're, about, you're looking to get married, you want a good marriage advice, look at somebody who could say I'm wrong. If somebody cannot say that they're wrong, that's a red flag and run very, very far away. If they're never wrong, guess what? They're never going to be wrong in the marriage. And you're going to turn, it's going to turn into an abusive relationship and it's going to turn very, very bad. And this is the same idea spiritually, relationship-wise, in everything way. And this is really one of the main, if not the main lesson that I could tell you about, the, about, about today's class. Really, the archaeological proofs, it's nice. I mean, we spoke about it, um, you know, so many proofs about the Torah. This is just an extra icing on the cake. It's, I don't even think it's needed uh, to add it in there. But hey, it exists. It's there. Let's put it out there. But the thing that you can learn from it is that people still deny when proofs are still shown in their face. It's because they're not interested. And they're not interested. They want to live their certain life. The same thing with a relationship. There's somebody who doesn't want to stop doing what he's doing. I, you know, I speak to people, let's say, they're not so faithful in their, in their marriage. And they claim that it's not wrong. Eh, my wife lets me. Oh, my husband doesn't mind if I you know, do this, I do that. Just because you think that you're correct does not mean you're correct. Look at it from a different angle. Look at it from a perspective that, that, that is from a spiritual perspective. There's only one accuracy. There's only one way. There's only one way of looking at anything, really. And that is from the aspect in the eyes of the Creator. And if you don't look at it that way, then guess what? You're in for a, a, for a life that you're going to live as a complete and utter lie, and it's a shame. And I beg everybody, everybody that's listening, this is a personal request. You want to live your life? Do it as, we, as you please. But do the research and be true to yourself. Any questions? You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.